me. All right. Uh, the process questions first. We'll get yeah. to some issues and some of those issues yeah. that I know you want to address, as you did in sure. your campaign launch there. Uh, but OK, we have been discussing this morning uh, the developments of this week in yeah. this Senate race. And let's again go back and set the parameters here because we have concurrently two Senate elections in November. That rarely happens, but it's happening this year. David Perdue is your regularly scheduled candidate. He's your incumbent Republican. Uh, he is up for reelection. There are three Democrats now who are seeking that party's nomination, one of whom presumably will oppose David Perdue in the fall. That's not what we're talking about here. We have the circumstance in which Johnny Isaacson, Republican Isaacson, the health reasons that compelled him to step down at the end of the year. The governor makes an appointment. The governor picks Atlanta businesswoman Kelly Leffler, Republican Kelly Leffler. She draws a primary, not a primary challenge. There I go using that word. She draws a challenge from Hall County Congressman Doug Collins. All right, there's the Republican side. There may be others. But there are Democrats in this race as well. Uh, we have just discussed Raphael Warnock entering the race yesterday. Uh, you have Ed Tarver, who says he will run, and in studio with us this morning, Richard Winfield. All of them uh, would be a ballot in November, a special election, that so-called jungle election. Okay, we'll talk about the dynamics there, but I want to circle back because the last time we talked, you were campaigning for Congress, an unsuccessful campaign yes. for Congress, running on some of these same ideas. Uh, and we'll discuss some of those ideas in a moment here, but just a, a process question first. If you had difficulty in a congressional election, it was confined to a congressional district, why would you expect a different outcome in a campaign for Senate? In a congressional district like our 10th district, uh, a Democratic candidate faces huge obstacles, just as a Republican candidate will face huge obstacles in many of the metro area, um, Atlanta districts, uh, because of the way the districts have been drawn. Outside Atlanta, most of the districts have been drawn in a way where Republican-leading voters have almost a two-thirds majority. That's not to say that it, it's impossible to change the minds of voters. As we have and, seen and, in, in Georgia sure, 6, sure. for example. So, but uh, you need resources. You need to have the ability to get out to the voters. And in, in the 10th district, outside metro area, there's really a kind of media desert. Mm. With some exceptions, such as this radio station mm. and someone like you who gives candidates a chance to have a meaningful discussion. But by and large, there's very, very few opportunities to have any free media coverage that gets out to the voters and informs them of, of candidates. But you're thinking and, the odds would be better, the playing field more level statewide. Yeah. Well, statewide, there, there, there's two advantages. There's no gerrymandering. And we know from the last governor's election that the numbers of Republican and Democratic-leaning voters is becoming very even. So it's competitive mm-hmm. for people on both sides. So... A Republican and Democratic winner of what I think will be a runoff have a decent shot of uh, All right. being able to. On the other hand, there's media coverage on a much greater scale. Sure. And right. also that means that people are not going to stand on the sidelines. They have to do something. They have to recognize this is a key election. The control of the Senate may rest upon this one election. Mm-hmm. And right. we're talking about where we're going as a nation. And we'll get to some of that. But again, I want to deal with the election first and just the, the mechanics yeah. of the election. The conventional wisdom would hold that the Democrats would love to see Doug Collins and Senator Leffler slug it out for 15 rounds and, and stand there in the middle of the ring beaten and bloody and broke while one Democrat has a clear field and, and could possibly flip the seat without even the need for that runoff you're discussing there. That can only happen with the Democrats lining up behind one candidate. Right now, I can think of at least three. We've discussed Ed Tarver, the former state lawmaker, Raphael Warnock, the, the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, and of course you as a 
professor of philosophy at the University of Georgia. Uh, the Democrats, I don't know, see if you ascribe to the conventional wisdom, yep. first of all, but wouldn't, it be, wouldn't the Democrats as a party be better served uh, following that strategy? Well, again, one has to ask, ask the question, is what counts first and foremost turning Georgia blue, as many Democrats aspire uh, to, to have that transition, or does it matter what a Democratic candidate stands for? You know, I think we've seen that uh, Democrats have been in power, both nationally and, and statewide, and they have not succeeded in solving the problems that have brought us to the situation we're at. So I think it's, it's crucial that voters get a chance to consider differing proposals as to where we go as a nation. All right, let's talk and, and, about what Democrats are not all of one voice. Talk about what's driving your campaign here. One of the things, and I say what's driving your campaign, in your video you lay out a five-point plan, yeah. and we'll get to those five points here. But I remember yeah. talking about this the last time you were in here running for Congress a couple of years ago. You're talking about it again now. Uh, guaranteed job. Yes. Everybody gets a job, and everybody gets the salary that comes with the job. How do we make that happen? And the way you make it happen is by having the government do on a permanent basis what our government did during the Great Depression on, on a lesser scale, which is when people can't find works, jobs in, in the private or public sector, uh, the government will offer them employment, and the employment in question will be providing the goods and services that federal, state, and local governments feel are needed for the sake of their communities, and those can involve such things as fixing our, our rather decrepit infrastructure, providing things like mass transit, providing broadband for everyone, aiding all of our public institutions, schools, hospitals, public health care, bringing arts to, to all our communities, and basically making use of whatever skills uh, and interests people have. Uh, a couple and, of things that will yeah. leap to mind here uh, by way of, of, of raising questions. Uh, the national unemployment rate right now, I don't know, 3% or change, 3.45%, yeah. yeah. whatever it is, uh, it's a similar level at the states. In the twos, yeah. I think, here in Athens, 2.45%, yeah. the unemployment rate here in Athens, uh, people have jobs. Well, Where are you going to find these workers? Well, look, generally speaking, most people do have jobs in this country. Um, even in the Great Depression, most people had jobs. But I think economists on the left and right are all agreed that the market is incapable of completely eliminating unemployment and completely eliminating unused capacity. You know, markets are not inherently efficient. They're institutions of freedom. We need them for that reason. But the freedoms in question are freedoms that not everyone can exercise. So even if you have 3% unemployment, nationally that means we have about 5 million people who want to work but can't find a full-time job. In addition to that, according to our own government statistics, you have nearly 5 million people who have part-time employment but want full-time employment. And then you have large numbers of people who have given up looking. The amount of participation in jobs of people of working age is at an historic low. It's about 60%. That means 40% of the people who could be working are not working. And that's a huge drain on both our general prosperity and I think it's something that contributes to all the kind of dilemmas of, uh, and ailments of despair that are racking our country. Another question that would be asked, uh, how do we pay for these workers? Yeah. We, we're the tre sure. uh, national debt right now, somewhere in the neighborhood of $22, 23000000000000 trillion. We ain't got the money. How are we going to pay for these jobs? Well, in a sense, I, I, th I think we, we do have the money. First of all, the cost of having such a program will largely be paid by itself. Uh, first of all, you have to recognize that we spend a trillion dollars on welfare programs. We spend well over 100, between 100 and $200 billion on unemployment benefits. Uh, if everyone who is willing and able to work 
can have employment and have employment at a fair wage, then much of this welfare dependency is eliminated. In addition, when you put people to work under ordinary levels of, of, of productivity and responsibility, they're going to be producing goods and services that are of equal or greater value than what, what they're paid. So in that respect, it's a win-win. And in addition, we have to recognize that we have the largest economy in human history. We have the largest accumulation of, of private wealth in this country. It's now approaching $100 trillion. And we have barely tapped this. Uh, you know, there's been an extreme expansion and in income inequality that's been developing in the last 50 years. I think when, I think both of us are sort of in the boomer generation. I don't mm. know how preserved you are, but yeah. I think we're, we're, we're comparable. the tail end of it, to be precise. So, yeah. so I think, you know, when, when we were growing up, uh, levels of, of employment and, and income and, and union representation were such that a family could live reasonably decently with one wage earner, and the wages of that wage earner, by and large, would keep pace with the growing prosperity of the nation. In about 1970, all of that stopped. Uh, wages have stagnated in real terms. Our economic growth has, is twice what it was before then. But nonetheless, we have been growing. We have twice as much, more than twice as much wealth produced um, per wage earner than before. But all of that extra wealth has not gone to wages, which are at their lowest share of national income in our the, history. Again, They've gone to the top. And that is, that is a problem both for democracy and for our national class. Right. I get to as many of these planks, sure, platform sure. planks, as we can in the time we have left yeah. here, another 10 minutes or so. Uh, Medicare for all. Somebody yeah. noting uh, the conversations in Iowa, the caucuses yeah. there on Monday, Four years ago, it was kind of a fringe idea. Now it's embraced by everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think it's becoming evident to many Americans that uh, we're facing a, a crisis in terms of the explosion of health care costs and the inability of many Americans to be able to pay for the, the health care they need. And uh, as I think we all know, the biggest source of personal bankruptcies is health care costs. Uh, now, I speak of super Medicare for all because Medicare is not adequate in terms of the services it provides. First of all, it has copays and deductibles, which many people cannot afford, so you can't even use it. It doesn't cover everything. And of course, it only applies to a, a part of our population. You know, we need to be, have access to healthcare in order to exercise any of our freedoms. So it's a fundamental human right. And a single-payer healthcare system has five advantages. First of all, it's great for business because it means that business no longer has to pay for part of healthcare costs. And that was one of the major things that made American business uncompetitive, particularly the auto industry, where German, French, et cetera, car makers. Well, let me just stop not right to deal there with because anybody. you're going to demand taxes from businesses to pay for Medicare for all. I mean, you know, for the people I, I, who I, work for businesses, the people who own businesses, corporate taxes. You're going to I don't, I don't, tax businesses no, moving forward. I don't think I, I don't think you even need corporate taxes. We can instead have a, have a tax system that focuses on a highly graduated income and wealth tax. And we can, we can lift the burden off corporations. Okay, so wealth tax, but, but, not but the, just but, an income tax, but, but, but wealth tax. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And one thing you have to, and one reason for that is that there's much more wealth than there is income. It's about five times as great. Mm -hmm. And it's much more unevenly distributed. The top 1% Well, it has wasn't distributed. I mean, it was earned. Somebody compiled well, it. Well, it, it was. Amassed it, the wealth. Yeah, but it, when you ask how it was earned, well, it was earned through the contribution of everyone who works and contributes to the the prosperity of corporations and so forth. But in any event, it's there. And if you think about taxes in general, you want to have taxes structured in such a way that they promote our freedom and that if that those who are going to be having the burden of taxation should be those who 
the tax payments will do the least to restrict their opportunities. And obviously, that depends upon how much wealth you have. Now, we're talking about a, a plan that would reduce health costs in half because we Americans are paying twice as much as every other developed nation for healthcare. And it's partly because we have this proliferation of different private insurance policies, which add all sorts of administrative costs, advertising costs, and in a sense, uh, they prevent us from being able to negotiate in strength with healthcare providers to keep costs in line with that of the rest of the world. So if we have a single-payer healthcare system, everyone gets the proper coverage. We are able to lower costs to a level than the rest of the world. We're able to have maximum freedom. We can go to any healthcare provider we want. I think we all know that if you have a private insurance plan, you're restricted so in who you can see. If I like my doctor, I can keep my doctor. Exactly. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I've I heard that before. And so. I think it's a completely phony issue about, well, well, that was not true about Obamacare. It did not put you in a position. You still had to use insurance sure. plans that restricted you. But this is different. Right. The other thing is it is a completely bogus issue about whether we're going to prevent people from keeping their plans. There's no need to, to tell people you can't keep your plans, but no one in their right mind is going to keep a plan where they have to pay for it, where they're restricted in who they can see, where they have co-pays and deductibles, whereas here you will be getting your health care needs provided for, and it will not be paid by payroll taxes, which are levied on employees, not on everyone. It will instead be paid by highly graduated income and wealth taxes. Right, and, I, and I think Winfield. we could have tax relief for 90% of the population. Uh, Richard Winfield, Senate candidate. I, I want to move along here and, and sure. get to some of the other planks on the platform. What else are you, the, the big five, what are you focused on? Well, another thing is leveling the playing field between employee and employer, um, which, I, which I think is crucial because, uh, you know, markets are such that, uh, as Cox Enterprises shows, in order for uh, a business to be viable, it has to grow and increase in order to be able to be competitive and have the resources it needs. And that means we end up having far fewer enterprises than there are employees. And that sets in place an imbalance in what opportunities individuals have. And to balance that, we need to enable employees to join together in unions and collectively bargain with their employees, employers, I should say. And we also have to establish a fair representation of employees on corporate boards. Uh, the dominating form of corporate organization is share issuing public corporations because that allows corporations to acquire the greatest amount of capital without having to pay uh, interest on debt and so forth. And you know, we live in a society where corporate boards have no representation by employees, and they make all the fateful decisions on shipping jobs overseas, introducing automation that robs us of jobs, of producing things that are not up to adequate standards, of, of polluting our environment, and so forth. So I think we can transform things from within by having these elements of fairness. We need to allow at every enterprise with multiple employees, all employees, whether they're gig economy, part-timers, contract employees, to be able to elect representatives with whom management will have to engage in good faith bargaining and at the same time have a say at uh, on corporate boards. Uh, would there be, I mean, any room for right-to-work states? Georgia is one, a, a right-to-work state. Any room for a right-to-work state in that model? Not if by right-to-work you mean what we have here in Georgia. I'm a state employee, and the right-to-work law deprives me of the right to engage in collective bargaining and the right to strike. Now, these are fundamental human rights that are well, you understand the difference yeah. between the private and the public sector, yeah. though. I mean, the, the private sector unions are, are arguing yeah. with management, yeah. labor and management are arguing over the division of profits. You yeah. work for the state. There aren't supposed yeah. to be any profits to divide. But, but there's still are revenues. 
there still is a question of, of how the revenues that are in I mean, people like disposal. FDR and George yep. Meany were against government unions. Well, I think that if, if they were, I think they were mistaken. I'm not sure FDR was against uh, government unions, but I think it's a mistake. I think no matter who you work for, you have a right as an employee to be able to bargain with them and to have a seat on the table. And I think this is good, good for our whole economy and prosperity because obviously we know what is going on. We have important things to contribute. And when, we, when everyone has a reasonable income, we have maximum consumer demand, which is good for business. Let me go ahead. I'm about a minute left here. Let me go ahead and put you on the Senate. Uh, you're in yep. Washington right now, yep. and uh, you're there with the Democrats, and the trial is winding down today, 10th yep. day of the impeachment trial. We've been talking 30 minutes. We haven't brought up President Trump yet, but let's yep. do here at the end. Uh, where yep. are you on the whole impeachment issue? Where would you be by way of calling for witnesses or voting to remove? Where would you be on all of this? Well, look, I think if we're going to have a trial of a president who's been charged with uh, impeachable offenses, well, a trial requires looking at the evidence. And the Senate is conducting the actual trial. Um, after all, bringing impeachment is a matter of what you could say like a grand jury, you know, mm. bringing an accused so the into a court. So 17 witnesses that we heard in the House were, in fact, grand jury witnesses. You could think of it analogy. in that way. And I think now you have another legal process going on. And there's a responsibility to, to have a real investigation. He's been charged with neither a high crime nor a misdemeanor. Do you think he has committed an impeachable offense? Well, you know, I think there are other things he's done that, that are impeachable, which are not part of the charges, such as he has, I, I think, violated the emoluments clause because he Profiting has... Profiting off but, his but hotels and property. All, that all of that and, uh, and, and, in a sense, having Marines stay at his places, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and I think he obstructed justice with regard to the Mueller investigation by, in a sense, threatening witnesses and, and refusing to cooperate. Um, so I think now we have an abuse of power in, in a similar way with regard to what happened here. He violated the law by not allowing resources that have been allocated to Congress, to the Ukraine, and so forth. So I think that there are real issues, but they deserve to be investigated. Uh, folks, find you online, your campaign website? Yeah, the campaign website is winfieldforsenate.com. Winfield. And spell that, by the way, like the That's, baseball yeah, player. W-I-N-F-I-E-L-D-F-O-R. Professor of philosophy at the University of Georgia and as of uh, a few days ago, a Democrat running for Senate. Thanks for riding out here this morning. Best of luck okay. on the campaign, Trump. Sure, we'll talk okay. again Great. between now and November. Thanks for your time this morning. Okay, thanks for having me.